I'm Steve Fisher. Brian Volk Weiss may not be a name you recognize, but you've likely watched at least a few of the hundreds of TV shows he's produced. You might be surprised by what he does and, perhaps more importantly, what he doesn't do. He's my guest on this episode of Life Slices. We're here with Brian Volkweiss. I'm going to ask a simple question. It's not simple for everybody, but maybe it will be for you. Who is Brian Volkweiss? <laughs> uh, Brian Volkweiss is uh, a, a very flawed man uh, trying to, you know, be a good father, a good husband. And if I'm lucky, leave something behind uh, that exists after I'm long gone. Well, it looks like you're on your way. You've got, I don't know how, I didn't count the total number of specials. I saw that you've got about 13 in development or post-production at the moment. Uh, are you aiming to get your own streaming channel? Um, I mean, we, we depending on what, it's a complicated answer to what should be a simple question, but... I mean, we have our own channel many places like Pluto, Tubi, Samsung, Peacock. I can go on and on, but it would be great. Don't get me wrong, but I mean, we're just as cheesy as it sounds. I mean, we're just trying to do the best we can making stuff that we're excited about and making sure it's profitable so we can keep making stuff. I'm I'm really surprised you said Pluto because I didn't even know that planet was populated. <laughs> it just started around 2016. How did you get to be the king of comedy specials? That's your term, not mine. But if it is true, um, I I fell into it really randomly. Uh, I had only been in a comedy club uh, w once in my life until I got out to California after college. And um, I started working for a manager and I didn't even know what a manager was when I started working for him. Um, and all he represented was comedians. So I started going to the clubs five, six, seven nights a week. Then I became a manager. I started representing comedians. And then I started producing specials for my clients and then I started getting phone calls asking me to produce specials for non-clients. And I eventually said yes. I was an idiot and didn't immediately say yes. Um, and then we just started making more specials and I didn't have to manage anymore. That's amazing. So we, with so many shows in production, as, as we were talking about, uh, you, I think I counted, actually, I think I counted 16 that are currently in either production or post-production. How do you manage to be in so many places at once? Do, do producers, are producers now cloning themselves? I wish. You, you just got to be disciplined. You do the best you can with the schedule, but... I mean, really, all you can do is is just do your best. And I, I, I hate to say this, but you got to get a, you got to you got to get on airplanes and do the work. I, I miss my family very much uh, when I'm away. But 
you know, it is what it is. You In some shows, you're listed as producer, executive producer, director, writer. What dictates which roles you take on in any given special? Well, I'm never a writer. So uh, I've written a couple things, but I've certainly not written anything connected to a stand-up special. Um, I'm always an executive producer, unless you're going back 20 years. And if I direct, I direct. And if I don't direct, I don't direct. When you are developing a comedy special, to what degree do you actually work with the comedian to shape what that special is going to be? If you're talking about the material, zero, absolutely zero. That's not my job. That's their job. And they want me to feel like that. They don't need my notes. They don't need my opinions. These comedians, they make it look easy, but it's not easy at all. First of all, second of all, they're in front of crowds 48 to 52 weeks a year. Who am I to tell them what fucking jokes to tell? Like, it, so that's not my job. My job is to make sure the set looks great, to make sure that the cameras record, the audio records, and then make sure the artist is getting what they need during pre-production, production, and post-production. That's my job. When you develop a special, or when a special is being done, say with Jim Gaffigan, how many shows are actually recorded that you draw from for the final product? Every special is different, but 99% of specials are two shows shot in the same night. 1% are, are between one and seven shows. So I've made specials that were seven tapings and I've made specials that are one taping, but 99% are two. Are you often or are you ever surprised by the reaction that a comedian gets from the audience? Yes, frequently. In a good way or a bad way? 99% of the time, good, 1% bad. We've made over 200 specials, I think. Yes, we've made over 200 specials. I think I've seen three bombs out of uh, over 200. And what do you do when, when you have a bomb like that? I mean, do you have to jettison the special or is it any way to fix it? You do the best you can. I mean, you, you honestly, you just make it as short as possible and just leave in the good stuff. But like I said, uh, over, I think we've done at this point, maybe 205 to 210 specials, originals, three bombs, not bad. That's very good odds. Very good odds. When, when you, how, how do you find the talent these days? Does it all come to you or do you, are you still frequenting those comedy clubs? Uh, I don't go to the clubs the way I used to, to put it mildly. I mean, I literally used to go five to seven nights a week, sometimes multiple clubs in one night. Uh, I did that for a long time, uh, over 10 years. But it really is, it, it, I use a referral system. There's agents, managers, and comedians that if they call me, I'll probably do it. And, and what impresses you about a particular comedian? You know, it, it really can be different things for different comedians. But if I'm to sum up the majority, they have a unique voice. They have a unique point of view. Um, or they have a really big fan base that will 
be excited to buy their special or to watch it. You've introduced a lot of relatively unknown comedians in your specials. What is it about a particular comedian that makes you sit up and take notice and say, that guy's going to make it or that woman isn't going to make it or whatever? It's it's two things. One, it's referrals. So if I'm getting a call from an agent or a manager or a comedian that I trust, it that's 76% of the battle. And then, I mean... I know this is a weird thing to say, but or not a weird thing to say, but a weird thing to hear. But it's really it's not about me. And the reason I feel that way is when I was a manager, I used to have clients that would go from selling 500 tickets a night in Denver in one year and then the next year. They're selling 50,000 tickets a night and then I, or not a night, a weekend. And then I would call companies and I would say, Hey, you should do a TV show with my client, or you should do a stand-up special with my client. And these companies, the executives would be like, eh, he doesn't make me laugh. Oh, I don't find her funny. And I, as a manager, I would always be like, well, who fucking cares what you think? 50,000 people up from 500 11 months ago. That's that's what you got to pay attention to. So I always said to myself, if I ever found myself in a position where I was green lighting things, that I would trust the audience and I would trust the agents and managers. It's a very short list. I mean, it's less than 20 people, but the majority of our business comes from referrals from those 20 people. So you don't have to sit there and, and, and find somebody funny to produce no, a special. Absolutely not that we would have gone bankrupt uh, 15 years ago. If that was my, the way I did business. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming even in your back in your early days, did you hang out at open mic nights at all? Cause those I find painful. No, not, op- not open mic nights, but, Half a step above that, yes. Because that was, I remember one in New York going to, and and this kid gets up, obviously his high school class or whatever told him he was funny, and he starts doing his routines, and one by one, the audience starts checking out and going back into private conversations, and you could see the sweat pouring down on his face, and finally he went, man, I can't handle this, and he jumped off the stage and ran out the front door, and I'm assuming he went to work in his father's uh, haberdashery or something. I've actually never seen that before. <laughs> That's pretty wild. There was another guy that got up who, with close-cropped hair, glasses, kind of pudgy, and everyone immediately went, uh-oh, here we go again. And he was brilliant, and it was Drew Carey. That's how it works. That's how it works, yeah. H- have there been any comedians along the way who have surprised you in – either being exactly like their onstage persona or completely different? 90% are different than their onstage, uh, who they are on stage, And in a, in a good way, by the way, like, you, you know, you don't want to be all amped up, you know, when you're sitting there having a salad at, at Denny's. So 
they're usually different, but some are, some people are exactly this, like Kevin Hart, same guy off stage, on stage. Like, to what degree has wokeness made these specials more difficult to deliver? I can only speak for myself and my company. I can't speak for the business. Not relevant. Like, it, it hasn't affected us at all. We haven't changed anything. We're not doing anything differently. Like, we, we wouldn't have done specials ever that were disrespectful or punching down to anybody that, it, you know, like we, we never would have done that anyway. So I guess that might be part of why we didn't really have to change anything. But we have, between specials we've made and specials we've acquired, we have over a thousand specials all on hundreds of places. Like I said, Netflix, Amazon, YouTube, everywhere, airplanes, boats, whatever. We get maybe five complaints a year about a joke or something. And by the way, this year, I don't even think we've had three. That's pretty amazing. Because I I sat down a few weeks back to watch the Dave Chappelle special that was creating all this controversy. And maybe it's because of my age, maybe it's because of my place in life. I didn't find it offensive at all. I thought that he did a great job of trying to make it non-offensive and explain himself. If anything, he put the joke on himself. So I was kind of stunned at the reaction it got. I I'm not going to say I'm not going to support or dissupport the. Is that a word? Dissupport. It is now. I just, I just invented that. But but I will say this. There are a lot more people complaining about a lot more things lately. And I'm not saying it's not right to complain. I'm just saying if in 1985, 1995, 2005, 2015, and 2020, each year you put out the same special, I guarantee you exponentially more complaints now than you would have had every prior decade. I grew up with uh, Corbett Monica and, and Myron Cohn and, and a lot of the great old comics. And I don't recall ever hearing anything offensive. And then again, I was a kid. Yes, but also there was no social media. Right. And that's the other, you know, my, my favorite thing in the world is like, I'll be reading the New York Times and they'll be like, John Doe from Poughkeepsie's. And I'm like, who fucking cares? Like, you're the New York Times. Why are you quoting John or Jane Doe from Poughkeepsie? Like, so I think that's a lot of it, too, where you'll have a writer who has a point of view and they'll go on Twitter and be like, oh, Jane Doe from Rochester uh, agrees with me. Okay, well, I'll quote Jane. And it's like, uh, the New York Times. Whoa. Talk about some of the other shows you've done. Because you haven't just done comedy specials. You've, you've done, uh, the, 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 what is it, the sitcoms that made us or the TV shows that made us and the movies that made us. How did those shows come about? Well, as you could tell from my background, I'm a big toy collector. So it took me seven years to sell what would become the toys that made us. But... I just was pitching a show about a topic that I'm passionate about. 
thank God I was already in business with Netflix on the stand-up comedy side. So I was very easily, not easily, but I was able to get them to buy the show. Thank God. I mean, it changed my life. It changed the company, it changed everything. Toys That Made Us really is our BC AD moment. So, and then after that, we kind of got a reputation for doing nostalgia. And that's what we're doing now, in addition to the stand-up specials. So looking at the toys behind you, and our listeners can't see it, I can, uh, I have to assume you're a big trekker. I am a, a very, very big one. You have a show out. Is it out already or is it coming out? It's out. Okay, so tell us about that one. Uh, it's called The Center Seat, 55 Years of Star Trek. And it's, to the best of my knowledge, the biggest, it's, it's 12 episodes. It is the deepest dive ever into Star Trek. Uh, it's one episode per one section of Star Trek history. So there's an episode about the original series, an episode about the animated series, so, and so on and so on. And what the way I pitched it was Gene Roddenberry and Lucille Ball turned the lights on. Rick Berman turned the lights off and we cover those years. So uh, when you say turn the lights off, it's uh, at least I've understood that they are developing other films. Oh, there's tons of Star. There's more Star Trek right now than in 30 years. But our show covers like 1963 to 2005. Was there anything surprising that you learned doing that show about Star Trek and its development? 50 dozen surprises, minimum. You have a whole episode about Lucille Ball and how she's involved in Star Trek. Tell, tell listeners about that. Well, it's interesting. I'm getting a lot of like feedback about that. And, you know, to your question earlier, you know, is that a woke thing? Like, is that like, oh, it's 2021. You got to make it about women. Like, no, it's not. That is something that has bothered me conservatively since junior high school, because the weirdest thing is, if you read books about the making of Star Trek, the books are extremely detailed and extremely open about Lucille Ball's contribution. For some reason, the documentaries usually ignore or brush over her contributions. So I've been trying to tell that story for a long time. We made a two-hour 50th anniversary for History Channel five years ago. And unfortunately, I was made to cut that out. Then we have a Star Trek episode of The Toys That Made Us. And I put it in there a little bit. But that episode, of course, had to be about the toys. So I couldn't do what I wanted. This time, for the first time, for better or worse, the audience, of course, decides I got to do what I wanted, which is show that if Gene Roddenberry is the grandfather of Star Trek, which he is, then if Lucille Ball is absolutely the grandmother of Star Trek, which she is. Okay, explain how she figures into that, because people may not know the history of Star Trek and may not understand how instrumental Lucy was in the show. I mean, I always break it down to the to me. 
in the simplest way possible. And, you know, the other thing to mention is like, I'm not just a documentarian. Like I'm not just a director. I'm not just a producer. Like I've been in this business for over two decades. So I know how the business works. So I look at it from that standpoint. So to answer your question, here's what you have to understand about something like Star Trek. The day Gene Roddenberry finishes the first Star Trek script ever, and he says, I'm going to go out and I'm going to try and sell this show. At some point, he took his first pitch. And you have to remember, there's only three networks at the time. There were hundreds of people on the same day as Gene Roddenberry pitching other TV shows. He pitched all three networks. All three networks passed. There was a couple small studios, less than 10. Desi Lu was one of them. Gene walks in, pitches Star Trek, and it's Lucille Ball's company, and more importantly, her checkbook that wrote the check that got the script actually written. Then her company brought it to NBC. NBC greenlit it. By the way, CBS and ABC passed. So you really have to understand. And what I really tried to do with the show was show how delicate the bridge is to get from A to B, to get a TV show on the air that we're talking about 55 years later. So NBC didn't even pay the full price of the episode. They only covered about 75%. Lucille Ball wrote the check for the other 25%. So if all of this is not crazy enough, NBC passed. Desi Lu convinces NBC to finance a second pilot, but this time they only paid for 30%. And Lucille had to write the check for the other 70%. And the other thing I really think is important to mention is Nobody else was doing this. Like, it's not like there's 10 other companies like Desilu. There may have been one or two others. That's it. So without Desilu writing those checks, there ain't no Star Trek. There's a script called Star Trek in the back of a box at Gene Roddenberry's ancestor's house. That's what Star Trek is without Lucille Ball. People don't realize that the original Star Trek may not have been, was not actually a huge success. It ran for three seasons and on a shoestring budget the whole time. And, but it has spawned, I, don't, I can't even count how many sequels and movies, and it's been an incredible franchise. There's over 900 episodes. Uh, I think there's 19 movies. Uh, and if I'm wrong, any Trekkies listening, don't be mad at me. Uh, it's just a mistake. Um, yeah. So it's, it is, I mean, it's in the top 20 biggest franchises of all time. Actually, sorry. It's in the top 15. Um, and yeah, it did not do well straight out of the gate. You're absolutely right. Were there ever any subjects that you wanted to cover in a special that you just couldn't get the rights or, or the, the green light from anybody? So far, no. Is, so what's, what are your holy grails? What would you like to cover 
that hasn't that you haven't covered yet? That's a long list, my friend. I mean, I and I, I I'm really attracted, and this is not that great for a producer, but it's true. I'm very attracted to important but obscure topics. So, like, there were just is this is the first thing I thought of. Like, there's a, an area in Germany called the Fulda Gap, and that is where all during the Cold War. The U.S. predicted if World War Three started, that's where it would start. And for like 40 years, what was going on around the Falda Gap on the Soviet side and the Americans or the NATO side, I mean, that could be a 10 episode series right there. But the problem is most people don't care about the Falda Gap. I mean, that does sound like it would be fascinating. I think so, but I don't know. Other than you and me, I don't know. Well, let's just make it for ourselves. We don't, we don't need the audience. I mean, all jokes aside, it's kind of what we do. Is there anything you would like our listeners to know about you or your work that I haven't asked about? You know, just the only thing I always like to say whenever I get asked that question is, and I appreciate you asking, um, I, I'm a part of a team you know, I, everything, if somebody says, Brian, you've made the best show ever, what they should really, and I appreciate it, but what they really mean is, Brian, you're a part of a team that made the best show ever. So, I mean, every time you see something we've made, dozens and dozens of people were involved with that. So I, I feel guilty not saying that. Hmm. I'd like to see a series on on uh, the M- the MCU, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, because oh, uh, I. I, I did have the pleasure of interviewing uh, Kevin Feige, and just knowing how things work behind the scenes, it's an amazing enterprise, and I think that's going to go down in history as one of the most amazing connected franchises. Unprecedented what he's done. Give him a call. Get the series going. <laughs> I'm on it. Brian, thank you so much for your time. I truly appreciate it. And I think uh, hopefully you'll get a lot more uh, visitors to your specials from this. I would love that. Thank you, Steve. If you enjoyed this program, please subscribe and like us on social media and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Life Slices is produced by Beatnik Ravens Productions, all rights reserved. Music courtesy of Fesley and Studios. 